we are going to finish up our sermon series called Light in the Darkness. We've been talking about this series for six weeks now. And uh, if you'll take your study guides, we'll dig into today's sermon as well. The study guide is the full page uh, sheet that you were given when you came in and the packet of information. And this uh, is a great way to kind of keep up with where I am in the sermon and also for your personal devotional times and for your, uh, for, for your small groups, your chapters. I hope you were involved in chapters that you can discuss our sermons uh, as well. I just hope that these are helpful to you. Small group leaders or anyone using these, if there's a way that I can make these more useful, let me know. I'm not really a teacher by trade, and so I can use your help in making these more useful. Just give me feedback, and we'll adjust those uh, as we go. So we're wrapping up our series. We've been talking about this invisible war, this invisible battle that I know is kind of weird to talk about, and it's a little uh, off-putting sometimes to sit around at Christmas time when you're supposed to all just sit around and feel good about each other and yourself and talk about God and Satan and uh, angels and demons and darkness and light. But that's exactly what we're doing because I think that's the true meaning of Christmas. Um, and I think if you come Christmas Eve, you'll get a little more insight uh, into that. But I think uh, the, the question we have to answer is the question I asked you in week one of this series, guys, which is, are you going to be a, a materialist or are you going to be a mystic? Are you going to do what everyone else in our culture pretty much does, which is live your life and make your choices and set your priorities in such a way that indicate, indicates that what matters to you most is the stuff of life that you can see and buy and taste, uh, money and prestige and popularity and, and houses and possessions. Are you going to live for that stuff first or are you going to be a mystic? And to be a mystic means, yeah, the material world is, is real, it matters, but there's another realm of existence, there's another reality that matters more, and we should be living for that reality. And what I want to say to us as Christians is that you can't really follow Jesus without being a mystical person, without having a mystical worldview and seeing that alternate reality. Now, what many of us want to do, because it's so challenging to be a mystic in our materialistic culture, the most materialistic culture that ever has been in the history of humanity is right here uh, in our day and age, in our place, Interloop Houston, incredibly affluent, incredibly materialistic, and so many of us have been so deep in it for so long that we don't even know how materialistic we've become. We are fundamentalist materialists, like we don't even see it, but we're materialists through and through, and the decisions that we make with our time and our money and our resources, it bears that out. What I want to say to us is that if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to see this other reality as well. We have to live for that reality. It doesn't mean you have to move off to some foreign place and be a, a monk or anything. I'm not asking you to be a nun. You know, don't disconnect from culture. Just realize that when you look at culture, there's more going on than what you can see with your eyes. When you're a mystic following Jesus, you learn to see with your heart. But it is so, so challenging. What I want to say to you is that Christianity is more than a philosophy to fit into your materialistic life. Christianity is not something that you can just use to make yourself a more successful materialist. The Bible is not a self-help book that will teach you how to be richer and more affluent, more successful, whatever, more popular. 
all of this, we who follow Jesus, we believe that there's something deeper, something more uh, to uh, live by. But it's so, so hard in a culture like Interloop Houston, where everybody lives for the next car and for the next house, for a better school, for our kids, for a better salary, whatever. So living as a mystic in Interloop Houston can feel weird. Living as a mystic in Interloop Houston is like showing up to a Star Wars party dressed as Jar Jar Binks. Like nobody wants to be around you. Like nobody thinks you're one of them. You know, like that's what it feels like. You're a weirdo. And, and, and yet what I'm saying is uh, that that's the life you sign up for. That's the life you sign up for when you say yes to God and follow Jesus. Now, I would bet that you have had run-ins with mysticism, even though you are by default a materialist, more than likely, you've had run-ins with mysticism. Like that vacation you took that time that took you up on the mountain or, or out onto the beach so far that you were outside of cell phone range. And after you got over that initial shock of, oh my God, what do I do? You kind of enjoyed yourself and you prayed more and you felt closer to God and your life made a little more sense because you finally saw that invisible world that you hadn't seen as a materialist. And on your way back home from that vacation, you told yourself, I'm gonna do that more often. I'm gonna unplug my phone more often. I'm gonna unplug from electronics or whatever more often and be less distracted and plug into God more because that felt good, that felt right. And you did it for a few days, maybe a few weeks, but you slipped right back into those old habits. You became a materialist again. Only this time you had the guilt added on to your materialism because you know how good it felt to be a mystic and see that side of things. So on our first Christmas together, my hope is that instead of us continuing to cave to the pressures of materialism in our culture, that we collectively would decide to be rebellious against these social norms that say, on to the next house, on to the next car, on to the next job, on to the next school, whatever, and that we collectively say, we're going to live for something else. Yeah, we're located in maybe the richest zip code in Texas or the country, but we're going to live for something else. We're not going to cave to these pressures any longer. We as a community are going to be a mystical community that sees the world through God's eyes as much as possible. I, I, to borrow a phrase from everyone's favorite movie this week, I hope we form a rebel alliance amidst the empire. Can I get an amen? I hope that's what the story can be. I think that's what the church is supposed to be. I think that's why God came to earth the way that he did at Christmas. And I want to explore that today by looking at the story of Mary. Mary is a story that we're all familiar with and yet also unfamiliar with. The reality between the lines of Mary's story in the Gospel of Luke. So open your Bibles if you have them. We're going to be in the Bible three different times uh, throughout today's sermon, reading uh, scriptures from Luke chapter 1. Um, so you can open your Bibles or take your study guides. These scriptures will also be on the study guides and on the screens. Before we read the first scripture, I'll just tell you a little bit about what we really do know about Mary. I, I think she's the second most important person in the Bible Back when we talked about Paul, I said Paul was the second most important man. The only caveat there, I think Mary is a little more important than Paul for obvious reasons. Um, and, and yet Mary only gets one Sunday a year in Protestant churches. I don't really know why that is. I think it goes back to the Protestant Reformation when the Protestant churches didn't want to look anything like the Catholic churches. And the Catholic churches had Mary everywhere. So Protestant churches decided we're never going to talk about Mary because we're not going to be like them. We lost something there. We lost a really important story in our tradition, and we must pay attention 
to Mary's calling because I think her story reflects your own. So first thing, what we know about Mary is that she is from Nazareth. That's obvious to us now. Uh, It would not have been so clear as to why God would send someone from Nazareth to save the world. Nazareth was nowhere. I cannot express you enough how backwoods, podunk, like East Texas, Nazareth was. Like, I'm from East Texas, so I can say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sorry. Uh, but, But yeah, Nazareth was that place. No one knew about Nazareth, all right? It was literally off the map. It's on our maps now because it's a tourist attraction, right? Because of Jesus and Mary. It's here to get your bearings. Bethlehem and Jerusalem are down here. Nazareth is here. Sepphoris, that boardwalk city we talked about where Joseph went to work, probably was there. But Nazareth, no one knew where it was. Literally, no one knew where it was because it was up on a mountain, but it was kind of inside a mountain. The mountain where Nazareth is is shaped like a bowl on the top, and Nazareth sits down inside the bowl. So if you're walking past that mountain, mountain, you just think that's a pretty mountain. You don't realize there's a town inside of it. And now that it's become a tourist attraction, Nazareth has 70,000 residents that live there because of all the tourism. When Mary grew up there, archaeologists have discovered through their digs and studies that there were between 100 and 150 people living in Nazareth when Mary grew up there. To give you an idea about Mary, more importantly, to give you an idea about the nature and character of a God who chooses to bring salvation through a town of 100 and 150 people. This is where Mary comes from. It's so remote that the Old Testament, which names and lists over 900 villages, towns, and cities throughout Judea, never mentions Nazareth, not once. The first mention in the Bible of Nazareth is in the Gospels. It is completely out of nowhere. God comes out of nowhere to save his people out of Nazareth. The second thing we know about Mary for sure is that she was young. I said this last week. I want to say it again because we have a lot of young people at the story, a lot of students, a lot of teenagers. Mary was 13 or 14 years old, guys. And we give our young people the impression that you can come to church and be a good boy or girl But you don't really get serious about leading the church, about being a serious Christian until later, until you finish high school, and then you go to a good school, you finish college, you get a good career, you find a good job, you you meet someone, get married, maybe you have a kid, and then you get serious about being a Christian. That is not God's plan for your life. Young people, get serious about being a Christian now. Put Jesus at the middle of your life now and fit everything else around Jesus. Don't Try to fit Jesus into your plans to go to a great school. Parents, lead your kids in this way. See that God chose intentionally to bring salvation to the world through a 13-year-old girl. There's a reason for that. Because in our youth, we bring a certain exuberance, a certain kind of trust and faith that maybe we lose when we get older and a little more jaded. Young people, follow Jesus now. Take Mary's lead and follow Jesus now. Some of you might think, I'm not Mary. I'm not that religious. I'm not a saint. I'm not even a virgin, whatever. But that's not the point. Mary was not a saint. When God comes to her, there's no indication that she was perfect. There's not even any any real biblical indication that she was that religious. God comes to her and chooses her, and she says yes in the Bible. You see, I think we've got 
Mary's image all twisted up. I think 2,000 years of church tradition has given us the wrong image of who Mary was. I think some of us want Mary to be mild-mannered and sweet and submissive and kind of effeminate and just kind of calm. That's the image that we have of Mary. I am telling you that is not the image I get of Mary when I read the Gospels. When I read Luke's account of Mary's life and her courage, I know Mary was gritty. Mary was tough and courageous and fearless a lot of the time. Even though she had fear, she overcame it. And so I think when we look at Mary, we should look less at a girl with this look on her face and more something like this. This is what I see when I look at Mary's story. And I'm being totally serious. This is not a joke. I'm totally serious. When I read Mary's story, I hear and see Katniss Everdeen. I see, you know, uh, Princess Leia, the girl with the dragon tattoo. That's the kind of spirit I perceive from Mary when I read her story. Mary is tough in the Gospels. If you listen for it, you'll hear it. Here's the first scripture reading today. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Here we go. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed, (laughs) much perplexed. I'm sure that's what she felt by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of its ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your cousin Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So last week we talked about Joseph's story. This is Mary's side of the scandal. And the struggle is real for Mary. This is a legitimate scandal on Mary's hands. When the angel tells her what's going to happen, Mary knows that Joseph will not want her. That's a given. No man in first century Nazareth will take a wife who is pregnant with someone else's baby. Not only will Joseph not want her, Joseph might call for her punishment, which according to the letter of the law meant being stoned to death outside of town. Mary knows that not only will Joseph reject her, but her parents will be devastated. Her parents who have loved her and cared for her, how will they take the news that she is an unwed, pregnant teenager? Mary knows that her friends will likely ostracize her, that there will be rumors spread about her for as long as she lives, and she's right. We have documented evidence of rumors that were spreading against Mary for her whole life. Not stuff from the Bible necessarily, but letters that have been recovered from one historian to another talking about the rumors being spread about Mary. 
by the enemies of Christianity. There were legitimate rumors. One, for example, said that Mary didn't conceive Jesus through the Holy Spirit, that Mary had a torrid affair with a Roman soldier, a real Roman soldier whose tomb exists. His name is Pantera. <laughs> Pantera. And, and, and that was what some people thought, that Jesus was the love child of the Roman soldier Pantera and Mary of Nazareth. And Mary knew about these rumors, you guys. There's no way she didn't. Mary faced the criticism of people for the rest of her life. And yet she says yes to what God wants to do with her, even though she puts her reputation on the line, even though everything will change for the rest of her life. When I think about Mary's story, I can't help thinking about my own mother, whose uh, birthday it is today, actually. Happy birthday, Mom, even though you're not here. She listens online and things. So uh, her name is Kathy. I love her to death, and she is uh, the best mom. But when I think about Mary's story, I can't help but think about my own mother, <clears throat> whose father died when she was 11. And uh, she spent the rest of her adolescence kind of wandering. When she was 15, my mother got pregnant. And um, her Nazareth was East Texas, Red Lick, Texas. About 150 people, <laughs> just like Nazareth, where I grew up. Um, her rigid religion, instead of Judaism, like it was for Mary, was Bible Belt Christianity. And my mom faced many of the same things I know Mary faced. A lot of her friends stopped calling. Her parents were devastated. Her church youth group told her to take some time off. <clears throat> her school uh, sent her away to one of those schools where we hide pregnant girls from the normal kids or the good kids. It's extremely challenging for my mother. She still bears the scars of that. I know it. But it taught her something, too, you know. She taught me this grace <clears throat> that she learned through that process. Even so, I, I think about my mother's conundrum, and it was different, too, because my mother at least had a rational explanation for where this baby came from, because the father was my dad. Um, and he fessed up to it, and they got married, and had me and my sister and kind of had a relatively normal life, as normal a life as you can have in Red Lick, Texas. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 you know, uh, they kind of recovered. Mary didn't have that kind of, a, of an explanation. When her family and friends asked about the bump in her belly, all she could say was, God did it. Which, you know, not only does she sound like a liar, she sounds like a heretic blaming God for her sin. That's all she could say, really. You think people believed her? Reminds me of a story Giovanna tells me about a friend of hers in Ecuador who was a good Christian girl, and everybody was shocked when she announced that she was pregnant, 15 years old, because she was such a good girl. And the preachers and her parents and friends wanted to know what happened, and, and she said that a few months ago she had gone swimming in this public pool, and there must have been something in the water that got her pregnant. And they, they said, yeah, I mean, if, if by something in the water you mean your prom date, uh, then maybe, but we're not buying it. You know, uh, Mary had no good explanation 
for what was happening in her body. And I think she paid a price for it. I know she did. I think you have to look hard for it in scripture to see the price that she paid, um, but it is there. Let's continue. Luke chapter one, verses 39 through 45. Here we go. Verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, uh, west of Austin. If you haven't been there, it's beautiful. Um, (laughs) She went out with haste is what I want you to see there. She goes in a hurry. She's in a rush. That, That matters to the story. We'll talk about it. For she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Um, in the story earlier, Elizabeth had been promised a child. Elizabeth's in her old age, right? She's postmenopausal, and she's been barren her whole life. Um, I think some of your Bibles might refer to her as Mary's cousin. We don't really know what their relationship was. Um, relative is the literal word, maybe an aunt or something. Um, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. You guys, there is no way around what I'm about to tell you. There's no explaining this away. Mary goes with haste after getting this announcement from the angel. She goes with haste from Nazareth to go see Elizabeth. Could we have that map back, Michael? Again, Nazareth is here. Bethlehem is here. Elizabeth and Zechariah had John the Baptist over here somewhere. Mary probably came down this way with the mountain region here. Probably a nine days walk. A nine day journey from Nazareth to Elizabeth's house. There's no way around this, you guys. Mary goes from being an unwed pregnant teenager to being an unwed pregnant teenage runaway. Mary runs away from Nazareth. She leaves her father's home in the first trimester of her pregnancy, sick as a dog, I imagine. Can I get an amen, ladies? Sick as a dog, runs away from home, 13 or 14 years old, goes for nine days through the wilderness, through the desert, on her own, sleeping God knows where, eating God knows what, to get to Elizabeth's house. She's a runaway. This is where I get the whole Katniss Everdeen thing. This girl was tough, man. Do you see it? Mary's just surviving here. Now, why would she leave her parents' home? Why would she leave the safety and familiarity of Nazareth unless home isn't home anymore? Unless she has to get away. Why does she go with haste? Why does she go in a hurry? And why does she go to Elizabeth's house of all the places in the area? Why Elizabeth? Maybe it's because Elizabeth, because what the angel told Mary, Elizabeth is the only person on the planet who could possibly understand what Mary's going through. Do you feel this? You see what Mary is up against? She leaves and goes for nine days on her own to find the one person she can confide in, the one person who will embrace her and not judge her. And she she finally makes it to Elizabeth's house, and I imagine she's exhausted. I imagine she collapses into Elizabeth's arms. I imagine maybe she even asks Elizabeth, can I just stay here? 
you know, I don't think Mary wanted to go back. I don't think Joseph knew yet. I think Mary said, can I just disappear with you? Can we have our babies together and raise them together and you just don't tell anybody I'm here? Elizabeth is in her 50s or 60s, I'm guessing in her 60s, and she receives Mary into her arm, in her arms, and, uh, and Mary is obviously discouraged. But Elizabeth, who is at least 40 years Mary's elder, uses this opportunity to encourage Mary. And, she, and, and Mary, uh, she, she reminds Mary of who she is. Did you hear her use the word blessed three times? She calls Mary blessed. And she says, Mary, I know it's hard, but this is a blessing. Mary, I know it's tough, but you're blessed. Mary, God came to you. What you are going through is a blessing to you and to the world. You're a blessing to me. The baby in my womb can't stop jumping in your presence because we're so blessed just to be around you. Tell me something. Do you think Mary felt blessed? Do you think this unwed, pregnant teenager, runaway, felt blessed at this particular moment in time? Do you think for a moment she's questioning God's wisdom? Do you think for a moment she's like, God, you gave Moses the parting of the Red Sea. You gave Joshua the walls falling down. I get an unwanted pregnancy. Thanks. Hashtag blessed. You think that's her tweet? No. But that's our tweet, right? Like, that's all we think about. Every time you hear somebody use the word blessed, it's for something material. Right? Think about this. That's how we know we're deeply materialistic because that's the only way we think about blessing. I got a raise at work. Hashtag blessed. I got a new car. I'm blessed. We just bought a new house. I got my kid into this school. Whatever. We're blessed. That is not a biblical understanding of blessing at all. We need to shake ourselves free of that understanding of blessing. That is a trap, you guys. That is a trap because that will get you thinking that when things get hard, that God has forgotten you or not blessed you. And that is not the case either. Ask Mary. Ask Elizabeth, who convinces Mary that she's blessed against all odds. She is blessed. And Mary gives Elizabeth, Elizabeth gives Mary the kind of encouragement that you need when you've said yes to God and things get hard. So my question to you is, do you have an Elizabeth in your life? Every Christian who's saying yes to God and following Jesus, that involves taking a cross on your back. You're going to need some help. And I'm telling you guys, you're going to need an Elizabeth in your life. And if you cannot tell me who you go to when you're at the end of your rope, who you go to, who will not judge you, who will understand the place that you're in, who you run to with haste when it hits the fan, I'm going to urge you in 2016 to make that a top priority, to be proactive whether it's through the story or somewhere else. We got chapters, we got teams, we got classes starting up in January for this purpose, to give you a room full of Elizabeths who will encourage you to keep going on the path God has set you on. Even when it seems like you'd rather hide and you'd rather disappear, you need an Elizabeth in your life. So I think it's Elizabeth's encouragement that sends, that gives Mary the strength to be sent back out and to go back to Joseph and tell Joseph. And I think it's at that point that Mary tells Joseph. And you know, at first, Joseph is a little freaked out, as any of us would be, but he comes around. What I want you to know <clears throat> is that Joseph, his acceptance of Mary's pregnancy is not the end of Mary's struggle. And there's more evidence of this. And again, You've heard this a thousand times, but I bet some of you have not thought of it in this way yet. Um, Mary's struggle continues in Luke chapter 2. This is the, the third and final scripture reading of the day. Follow with me, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 
In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the son of David, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver the child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So we're really, really familiar with the last part of this. Charlie Brown, right? Like that's, we all can probably recite it. No place for them in the end and all that business. But I don't think we really hear what's happening in the story with the census and all that. So the census is a historically verifiable event. There were three censuses that were, uh, that's hard to say, censuses, censi, whatever, that were, that were conducted between like 8 BC and 6 AD by the Roman government. The reason they did these types of censuses was to be able to tax the people. So they want to get a count so they could tax the people properly. Here's the thing you need to know about first century Roman censuses. They didn't count women. No one did. They didn't need to know how many women and children lived in a place. They needed to know how many heads of household and how many people were in a household. So the heads of household, the male heads of household, would go to their hometowns and report and would pay taxes based on their household. There was no real reason for Mary to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Eight or nine months pregnant, on foot, or on a donkey for 10 days from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why not stay in the comfort of your own home with midwives and nurses and your mom and your sisters to help you give birth to this baby? Why risk your holy pregnancy? Why put everything on the line and go on this journey with Joseph? Why let your only midwife be a teenage carpenter with his calloused hands who's never even seen a woman before? Why let him be the one that helps you deliver this child instead of staying home? Because Nazareth is not home anymore. Mary lost that part of her life because she was so committed to saying yes to God's plan for her life. She lost that comfort for a moment. And she goes with Joseph to Bethlehem and she gives birth there. I think it's because Joseph was all that Mary had in her life at that point in time and her reputation had taken such a hit. But Mary was no materialist. If she was, she would have turned and gone the other way months before. Mary was a mystic. Mary saw the darkness and evil in the world around her, and she knew she had a part to play in redeeming it, in shining a light on it. Mary knew that God had a greater purpose for her life than just caring about what other people are saying about her. Do you hear this? Mary cared less about what other people said about her than what God was calling her to do. And Mary chose to say yes to God. Mary chose to say yes to God. You always have a choice when God 
presents you with a plan. Joseph had a choice. He could have walked away from Mary. Mary had a choice. She could have hidden or given this pregnancy up. She could have given the baby up. Mary had a choice. Those choices existed back then. Mary could have said, no, thank you. I want to have a normal life. My mother could have made the same choice. She's talked to me at length about the choices that she was presented with at 15 years of age with a pregnancy. That's unexpected. She could have chosen several other paths that we all know about. But she, she says she felt God calling her to have this baby. I, for one, am glad she felt that calling. <laughs> my dad said he felt God calling him to propose to my mom. Was it hard? <laughs> Was it hard to drop out of high school and lose all your friends? And my dad took a full-time job at a paper mill for 20 years. Have you ever smelled a paper mill? Was it hard to go back to school at night with two kids at home and get your bachelor's degree so you can go to seminary in your 30s and become a pastor? Was all that hard for my dad? Was it hard for my mom to never have the career that she once dreamed of because she sacrificed herself to have a family? Was it hard? Yes. Was it a blessing? They would say yes. Not because of me and my sister, but because of our kids, their grandkids. That's where the blessing is. It skips a generation. But they would say, we never doubted for a minute. This is where we needed to be. This is what we needed to be doing. Yes, it was hard. Yes, it was a challenge. But yes, it was a blessing. Here's what I'm asking you. As we get ready for our first Christmas, will you say yes? to what you know God is calling you to do and who God's calling you to be? Or will you go back to the same materialistic ways? Will you rise to the challenge and say yes, even though it's hard? Or will you risk your reputation, your image, your safety for the purposes of serving a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God? Students here in the room, I want to ask you, will you put your life with Jesus as the first priority at the center of your life and let all the other stuff, where you'll go to college and what you'll do and who you'll meet and who you'll date and all that other stuff you obsess about fall into place around Jesus? Or will you put something else at the center and try to fit Jesus in? Parents, are you raising your children in such a way that reflects your priority is Jesus? Are you raising your kids in such a way that says the most important thing to me is that my kids know and love Jesus, not that my kids go to Ivy League, not that my kids go and have a great life, not that my kids live in River Oaks one day. Are you raising your kids to love Jesus first? Are you raising your kids in a mystical instead of a materialistic way? Because just like in Mary's time, Evil is all around us, just like it's all around her. We know it. We've seen it on the news. We know darkness exists, but we also know Jesus is the light of the world, and we are empowered and emboldened to shine that light in dark places. If we don't shine it, who else will? Is it hard? Yes. Does it lose friends sometimes for you? Yes. Will there be challenges? Of course. Saying yes to God will not make your life easier. Saying yes to God will make your life matter. Your life will be one of significance. And when you reach the end of your life and look back, you'll be so glad you made the choice to say yes to God and to live for something more than what 90% of the people around us are living for today.
I think that's what the church exists to be. We look at the church, I think a lot of times like we look at Mary, like the church is supposed to be a sweet place, a sentimental place where we're all learning to be good little boys and girls, good little citizens who obey and we're moral. That is not what I see when I see the church. When I look at the church, I see a rebel base camp in the empire training people to rebel against the darkness. If we're not that, we're not the church. People ask me all the time, what do I do for a living? And I tell them I'm a pastor and then they move on to the next conversation. Nobody wants to talk to a pastor apparently in public or whatever. Or if they do, they're like a really religious person and I don't want to talk to them. And <laughs> it's a true story. And, uh, and, 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 you know, one day, you know, I'm going to tell them what I really do. Because I think people, when they hear pastor, they think my job is boring. They think I go to nursing homes and I say little rote prayers and I do funerals and weddings. One day, when somebody asks me what I do, I'm going to tell them I wake up in the morning and I go to war against the prince of darkness. What do you do for a living? I'm going to tell them I wake up in the morning and every day I slay with my bare hands the devil and his minions. Every day I run an underground railroad that frees the slaves to darkness. Then they run toward the light every day. I fight this unseen war. Do you think they'll talk to me then? Probably not. It'll probably freak them out just as much. One day I'm going to say it. What I'm telling you is that God is calling you in the same way to live a mystical life, to live for things you cannot see, touch, taste, or buy, to live for things that are eternal, to shine a light in dark places with your eyes and your heart and your hands and your words, to let the Holy Spirit dwell in you in such a way that his light is apparent just when you walk into a room. But first you have to say yes to God. It will not make your life easier. It will make your life matter. You will be richly blessed. Maybe not how you envisioned it. But saying yes to God will change your life. And my prayer this Christmas is that right now, as we pray, you will tell Jesus you're ready to enlist. You're ready to put him at the center of your life and fit everything else around him because nothing else matters. And that's what Christmas really is. That's why Jesus comes to us in the way that he does. Literally out of nowhere, Jesus comes as a surprise attack against the darkness and he invites you to join him. I pray that you'll say yes. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for coming in the form of a baby to show us a better way and to make our lives matter. Give us a renewed sense of vision to see the things we cannot see with our eyes, to see the world around us with our hearts, with your heart, to say yes to your holy calling, to shine your light in dark places. We thank you for transforming us, for transforming this city and your world, and we know it's just the beginning. We pray that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.